If you're listening to this on the podcast, I'm interacting with people, so it won't be as smooth as a Sunday morning message. So that is the disclaimer, and we're thankful for all those who listen. So we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. So let me just begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful group here tonight. Thank you for those who are listening by way of podcast. We ask you to be with our church, be with the families represented in this room, be with the families represented by those who will listen and stream this podcast. Lord, we pray that prodigals would come home, that marriages would be strengthened. Lord, that we would never live arrogantly when it comes to matters of the family, that we would live humbly in your sight and in the sight of others because, Lord, we need your help. We need your guidance in raising kids, in loving our spouse, in serving you in this day and age. So, Lord, we just humbly come before your throne and ask for your help and your guidance. And so, Lord, I ask you to anoint the teaching of your word tonight. Lord, these are your words from your book that you inspired. So, Lord, we pray that people would be able to grab some nuggets during the midweek that they could put into practice in their personal lives, in their marriages, and in the way they raise children or assist in the raising of grandchildren or foster children. Lord, we need your guidance. We ask you to ordain and anoint this teaching tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so where we ended last week was covenant. We spent some time defining what the covenant of marriage is, what it should look like. We even gave you the history of covenant throughout the Old Testament, talked about the shedding of blood, that contractual agreement between God and man. God is in the covenant. He is about the covenant of marriage, covenant relationships, commitment, sacrifice. And we don't have to bring our animals here on Sunday and slaughter them because Jesus paid it all. Amen? Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy. So we celebrate the blood of Jesus tonight to where even when we fall short, we are covered. Amen. We are cleansed. Uh, we are spoken for by our creator and we give God praise for the covenant of Jesus Christ. But we mentioned the different purposes of marriage, the spiritual purpose, the social purpose, the practical purpose. I want to jump into one of my favorite passages of scripture in the New Testament tonight to give you the blueprint for family success. And I want to be honest, I haven't always gotten this right in my house. Uh, Kelly and I are both type A's, and we, we both don't like to lose. So early on, as I shared from the heart last week, our marriage didn't begin um, ideally. So we had to kind of grow into the couple God wanted us to be. And luckily, five or six years into our young marriage, God got involved or we wouldn't have made it. But those early years... Uh, our home was not peaceful. Can I get an amen or an oh me? Uh, there were a lot of fights, and it, just thankful neither one of us made it on Dateline or 48 Hours Mystery for killing one another and hiding our bodies, okay? God got us through that season of life, and he got involved in our marriage and praised God because we needed him to. And now, literally, we're best friends. Uh, there's nobody I'd rather hang out with than my wife. I mean it. We have such a good time together, serving the Lord together, loving our kids together. And we're having a ball after 20 years. And the reason is God got involved. And so no matter what you're going through, if you'll get God involved, he'll bring peace. And that's what this 
passage of scripture I'm about to read to you is about. It is about peace, shalom in the Hebrew. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 15 through verse 21. I like the NIV for this particular passage. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. So many times in a marriage, it's who can get the last word, who can win the fight, who can win the argument, who can get their way, when really the goal for every Christian person is to find compromise and to find peace in the relationship. But for many people and couples, once we get to a certain point in an argument or in a disagreement, the fangs come out, the, the anger comes out, the mean insults come out, and we're not looking to bring peace to the marriage. We're not looking to bring peace to the home. Um, we're, we're looking to win this fight. And that's not how God intended it to be. If we are Christians, we are to be ambassadors of the kingdom, but we're to be agents of peace. Everybody say shalom. I love that Hebrew word. I do. Whenever I say it, I just feel Holy Spirit peace over my body. I really do. That word shalom, it brings and breathes peace. And many times, as I stated last week, we need to take a time out in our marriages so that we can, we can find shalom. We can capture the peace of God. So then it says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now here's the fun part. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Can't tell you how many weddings I've done because I guess because of my years in the world and then my 10 years uh, as vice president of a youth league dealing with young kids and families, I for a long time and sometimes still feel this way, I think I'm like the Facebook pastor of the city or something. Um, when people don't have a pastor, they call me to do their weddings. When they don't have a pastor, I'm doing funerals, and that's why you'll see me a lot of times doing funerals and weddings and things of that nature, and they're not members. Most pastors will not even fool with you unless you're a member of their flock, but I've always used that as a way to evangelize people and a way to shine my light. I've always felt like that's probably the most important thing I'll be asked to do all week is to go preach a funeral of uh, someone that maybe didn't know the Lord or was surrounded by people that didn't know the Lord or go maybe bring Christ to a young couple and the family members that surround, because I'm going to get the gospel in everything I do. And, you know, I'm thankful for that. But because I do a lot of worldly weddings where I, you know, use it as a form of evangelism, a way to lead couples to Christ, I mean, a lot of the females, they don't like this scripture. You know, in Ephesians or Colossians, they don't like that word submit. I mean, because they've heard the connotations behind it. They've heard that it's demeaning and that it means that the husband is their boss or their ruler and 
all of these crazy things. And so I've even had, you know, young ladies ask me, to, will you take that verse out of your vows? And I'm like, well, let me explain what it means first. And then let's talk it through. And basically that word submit means to rank under. Uh, it is not a demeaning word towards the female race. It is a willingness to rank under and to be uh, as of one. And then the next verse, husbands, loves your wife, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so if wives are to submit to their husbands as the head and the husbands in Ephesians, we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loves the church, those things happen in conjunction. It's not either or. If you're not loving on your wife the way Jesus loves his bride, then she's not going to want to submit to you as the head. Both have to be happening at the exact same time for God to get the glory and for his blessing to be on your marriage. But Colossians is a little, Ephesians is more theological. Colossians is more practical. And it's saying, look, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Then it takes it a step further and says, children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. And then fathers do not embitter your children or in some translations, do not provoke your children to wrath lest they become discouraged. So uh, the blueprint for marriage, um, many times God's not consulted in courtship and marriage, as I stated last week. I don't believe theologically some marriages were put together by God, even though a religious ceremony may have been performed, even though a preacher or a priest might have been in existence. Uh, I believe many of our marriages are more governmental marriages than they are godly marriages. Because if it is a godly marriage, the first thing you'll have are two uh, submitted Christians to the call of God on their life. Both will be born again Christians and they'll not just simply claim Christianity as a label on a form they fill out. Literally, they're sacrificially following Jesus. Not perfect, not an angel with a halo or a perfect uh, person. We know that only Jesus is able to accomplish that. But I mean two committed Christians and that's where it is supposed to begin. Um, most people marry for the attraction or the physical and when that fizzles the marriage also fizzles and so three principles uh, for a strong family that will apply to marriage and parenting the first one's the principle of authority the principle of authority this will apply to your personal life your business relationships really everything the home must be regulated according to scripture and Christ must be at the center of the home as Lord. Lord is Adonai in the Hebrew, and it literally means uh, above all. To reign above is what the word Lord means. So you want the Lord in his rightful place in the home. So the husband, according to the word of God, to the Bible, is supposed to be the head of the family. And the wife willingly submits because the husband is pouring so much love on her that he makes it easy for her to submit. Amen? I don't hear a lot of amens from the women in the class, so that must not be happening uh, like it's supposed to be happening. Um, the children are to be obedient to their parents, okay? Get into a little bit of parenting later, but anything with two heads is a monster. 
you can't have two heads leading a business. You can't have two heads leading a church. You can't have two heads leading a home. Uh, you need one head and you need order and rank in anything for it to work effectively. Um, I, I've seen it many times uh, when people are 50% partners um, in a business, one eventually buys the other one out because it just can't work. So husband and wife, they're one flesh. So first thing, you don't want two separate entities because when you get married, the Bible says you become one. So when you become one, the way you fit is the husband is the head and the wife is the co-head. And so if she's submitting and he's loving her in the manner that he is supposed to, then everything flows and it's a good example to the children. It gives them security, gives them safety. Uh, it's a picture of God, the Trinity. All of those things uh, will help the, the child's not only emotional development, but psychological development to have that model in place. Um, Joshua says, you know, for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. So again, the word submit is a present tense verb. It means to rank under. First Corinthians 15 verse 28 says this, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him that God may be all in all. So Jesus Christ, according to the word of God, submitted himself to the will of the father. So if Jesus was a person submitted to the will of his father, then we can be people of submission as well. Because the Bible says he submitted himself and became obedient unto death. So he willingly gave his life for our sins. So this did not make Jesus weak, nor did it make him inferior. In fact, Jesus was superior in stature, in spirit, in nature, in sacrifice, in service, in every area. He was superior. But before you ever go high, you got to go low. And so he was willing to submit. And then now he stands and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he is the king of all because of his willingness to submit himself unto the will of the Father. So when we submit, we position ourselves for a great blessing, amen? And so that's what the Bible teaches. Um, so the principle of authority, until you learn how to submit or rank under someone, you'll never be able to rank over them. And that's separate, that's not necessarily a marriage principle, it's a life principle. Until you learn how to serve someone in a leadership over you, You'll never be an effective leader until you learn how to serve someone and submit to someone else's vision. And when you pass that test, if it is in God's will for you to be a leader, then you will excel to the role of a leader because you've understood the role of a servant. And so the principle of authority will carry you. Next, the principle of affection. So we don't stop at submission. We move ahead with love, with affection. So we have authority and we have affection. So a home should be a warm place and a loving place. Uh, authority and discipline have to be administered uh, in the home because if you don't discipline your child, it means you hate them, is what the Bible teaches. Uh, if you don't discipline your child, it's as if you hate them. So you have to love your child enough to discipline them uh, 
I still believe for a young child, not in abuse, but in the broad of correction as what we referred to it as. You know, I, I spanked my boys. I, I believe in it. I never abused them or beat them or anything, to, but I would spank as a way to teach right from wrong, to, uh, as a form of protection, because that's the way Word of God says to do it. Uh, I wish I could tell you that sometimes I, I, I was totally spiritual in spanking, but I wasn't. A few times I was angry, and the Bible teaches that we're really not to spank that way. Um, and so I would encourage, if you have young ch children, you know, don't be PO'd, TO'd when you're spanking them because that's about you getting your anger and frustration out. And that's not what spanking's for. It is, it is to teach them right from wrong. It's to teach them um, the measurement of how far they should go in a situation. And if you're angry, all that teaches them is that you're angry and they, they don't want to make you angry again. And I, I messed that up some when my oldest were small and there were times I wished I would have calmed down and waited, but it was just almost a reflex, you know? And uh, I, that was kind of the way I was raised as well. And that doesn't make it right, but it's just many times you done started the whipping before you had time to process it, you know? And uh, so my grandmother had that gift as well. She done whip you before you even got finished making a mistake. So, uh, and uh, I think, you know, we could probably use a little bit of that in today's culture, but I don't think we need all of what we were raised in. I think there's, there's uh, some extremes of that. Uh, and I, I've always felt like if you do it right when they're children, you know, you don't, have to spank them and, and be in physical altercations with them when they're older. Uh, I never really spanked my boys after 11 or 12, partially because they could whip me after that um, if they wanted to, and uh, second, because I just didn't feel like that was the right strategy at that point. You know, they, they're, they're transitioning into men, and so... There are other ways to, to get your point across during those teen years. But the Spirit will tell you what to do in that way. So affection, it needs to be um, a loving home. And many marriage specialists and counselors teach us that the primary need of a female is affection. Um, and so it's not um, ancient revelation that husbands should be loving their wives as Christ loved the church. It's an actual need uh, that women need to be cared for, love, um, and, and made to feel safe and warm. How many of you have ever read the book, The Five Love Languages? Uh, I know many of you. It's a fantastic book, one of the greatest books written on marriage. I try to give every couple I, I marry a copy of that book and a few years ago, I had the opportunity to preach at a conference with Dr. Gary Chapman, who wrote that book, and it worked out where we actually had lunch. And I said, look, you owe me a lot of money. And he was, he's like 83, and he said, excuse me? You know, this is my first interaction. I said, I've given your books out to every couple I've ever married for 15 years. And so he laughed, and very humble man, uh, was a pastor, and I, he wrote the book. Uh, in a very casual, contemporary way, and little did he know it was going to be a 
worldwide bestseller and sell millions and millions and millions and millions of copies. He was just trying to be obedient to the call of God on his life. And he's got some other great books too, but none uh, like the five love languages as far as the response from the world. And basically the five love languages teaches you to learn your spouse's love language. So there are five of them, quality time, words of affirmation, acts of service, physical touch, and gifts, which gifts always kind of weirded me out because I'm like, who doesn't like gifts? Like everybody likes gifts, but there are some where that is really, that's their love language. And so just to talk about Kelly and I a little bit. So Kelly's parents aren't extroverted, right? They don't, they don't walk in and meet a bunch of friends and hey, they're, they don't really talk about things in her family. Am I true? They don't talk. Like the pink elephant's in the room, nobody's talking about it. Just doesn't happen. My family's completely opposite. Like the dinner table was where we debated politics. We argued. Everything was told. There was, I mean, everything, raunchy stuff. I mean, I had two older sisters who were pretty brilliant. So one's 11 and one's eight years older than me. So just as a kid, I mean, I had to learn to communicate early just so somebody'd listen because we had teachers and preachers and all kinds of stuff going. So we talked about everything and we fought and everything got out on the table. So we loved big, we fought big, everything was out there, you know, at the table. Well, so when Kelly and I got married, like it's two completely different trains of thought, you know, and so the way Kelly's father showed love was doing things around the house, taking care of the cars. He doesn't really communicate his feelings at all. If he has feelings, I don't, we don't even know if he does sometimes. But if he does, he, he communicates those through doing things for the kids. And he does do a great job at that stuff. He does have a good heart for that. Um, well, my dad was like a lover, great with his words. He's a preacher, you know, so, you know, that's me. I like write poems and say sweet stuff and I use my words. Her family doesn't. So my primary love language is words, right? Well, I married somebody that comes from a family that doesn't talk. And so I would keep saying all these sweet things to her. Well, it wasn't doing anything. You know, she'd be like, oh, that's sweet. Like almost weird. Like I'm, I'm making her feel weird. And so it, this went on, you know, and, but I figured out like after a while, even before I read the book, like if I had a day off and she didn't, and I did stuff around the house, even little stuff, like she would soar to the moon. Like that was the greatest thing in the world. And I'd be like, I wrote this poem and did all this stuff and nothing, but then I, I did the dishes and you're happy, you know, and it's that her, her love language is acts of service and gifts, right? Mine is words of affirmation, physical touch. And it, it all has to do with how you were raised, honestly, how, how you were parented, what your love language is. But many times we talk to our spouse in the language we want to be spoken to in. So I'm giving her words because I want words, but that's not what she needs. She needs acts of service. She needs me to go buy something, right? And the same thing. So after 20 years, like, She's come a long way in the words and what I need. And I think I've come a long way um, in her love languages. So it's important. 
Um, if you're going to have a loving home to learn your partner's language, what makes them tick? And I, I, I give my highest endorsement for that book. If you've never read it, it's just a great way to start um, a marriage is, is knowing uh, the love language of your partner, what makes them tick. Uh, the next is the principle of admonition. Um, admonition is to caution, counsel, correct, rebuke with mildness and to inform by warning. The home should be a place where the word of God can bring correction to the people in the home, whether it be the marriage or the children. I wouldn't recommend husband trying to correct your wife all the time or your wife trying to correct the husband all the time. But certainly if the word of God is the standard, then it can bring conviction all by itself. And if the word of God is lifted up in the home, then that is the direction we should go. So discipline and correction and guidance when it comes to raising children, especially, um, you know, you, ha you have to discipline them. You don't want to. It's not fun if you love your children, but to love them means to discipline them, to, to correct them, and to guide them. Uh, so many parents in this culture are enablers, and it's, it's sad. And it, it didn't start when they got on drugs. It didn't start when it transitioned into heroin. It didn't start when they were on the street three or four times. It started at about eight and the enabling continued through middle school. It continued through high school. And the parents get in such a deep hole with enabling their children that they don't know how to stop enabling them. And literally the parents in an effort to love and save their children end up killing them because they will not let them suffer consequences for their bad decisions. And I realize uh, that I am still in this journey of raising kids with 121, 16, and 13. So it's very difficult to raise a child and to know what to do in different situations. But there comes a time where we have to correct God, discipline, and let that child fall on their face if necessary and deal with the consequences of their mistakes. Uh, not at eight years old, but if you'll start that process of discipline, correction, um, risk and rewards, then hopefully when they get to the age of accountability, unless they have some mental illness or different health struggles, that uh, they'll be able to learn from their mistakes and overcome them on their own without mom and dad uh, bailing them out, so to speak. So if you find yourself in a situation I believe in the Holy Spirit of the living God. And so the Holy Spirit must have a role in building the home, building the house. And um, the Bible says, you know, when Adam is put to sleep, from his side a rib is taken and a woman is created. We touched on that in our covenant message last week. This is a divine picture of Jesus who was put to death on the cross and from his side, as you know, he was pierced in his side. We know that the church was birthed, the father was revealed, and salvation was released. In Ephesians, it says, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. 
It goes on to say the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, loves your wives, even as Christ has also loved the church and gave himself for it. So the husband has to be willing to lay down his life for the wife. Uh, this is not, and I've touched on this briefly, but I want to say this because nowadays you have to. Uh, this is not um, a promotion of abuse in any way, shape, or form. If, if uh, your husband is not a godly husband and he beats you or he's constantly verbally bashing you, get out of that. Uh, this is not saying you subject yourself to abuse or uh, continuous adultery or, or, or anything like that. What this is saying, c considering that the marriage is a godly marriage that God has ordained, that there should be a mutual submission, a mutual love, and it's a picture of who God is when both people are serving the Lord. What you've had in these religious abusive situations in the past is a person who's not a godly person, be it the husband who's using religion as a way to, to abuse his spouse or other women, and you'll have that. Um, and you've got to just be aware uh, if, if it doesn't sound like Jesus or look like Jesus or feel like Jesus, then it's abuse. It's not Jesus. It's not a godly marriage. And for these marital verses to apply, the marriage has to be godly. Is anybody with me? Are y'all with me? God has to ordain it for him to keep it. And sometimes we have an ungodly covenant and abuse is taking place, and then we're pulling scriptures here or there to get our way or to win the argument, and that's, that's not a godly marriage. That's not uh, God's original intent for how this is supposed to work. When a home has a saved dad or a father that is sacrificing and loving his family like Jesus loved the church, uh, the orphan spirit is for ever put in its place in the lives of the children. Uh, I preach on this a lot because I deal with it a lot in people. Um, an orphan spirit is a spirit of abandonment. It's a spirit of rejection. Many times it happens, either the father was absentee, left early, um, something happened to the father. And what ends up happening in men and women uh, is a need for validation. Um, a constant need to compete, a constant need to be the center of attention, a constant need to prove yourself. And it can be very toxic in every realm, including a marriage, because the father issue has to be dealt with. Amen? That's why we refer to God as Abba Father in the Bible. He sent his spirit into our hearts crying, Abba Father, because we're all born with a spiritual void. We all need a daddy. Some of us had a good one, some of us didn't. That's why God fills the role of our father and our spirit person inside of us is longing for affirmation, acceptance and approval from a dad. So whenever you have an earthly dad loving the wife like Christ loves the church, serving the family, it brings a peace to the children and a confidence that can't be learned in school. It can't be learned in school. And it automatically brings a security and a confidence to a child. Now, 
for those of us who have daddy issues, and you might say, well, your dad's Ron Phillips. You love your dad. You honor your dad. Absolutely, he's my hero. But we had a lot of issues uh, that you may not be aware of, and I'm not going to rabbit trail into that tonight. But um, you can love someone and honor them as your father, but have hidden issues. My father was gone a lot. He would admit that now, more so for my sisters than me. But he was still gone and missed some big moments, usually for church people who would leave him and not care two cents about him in about a year from that time. And that hurt as a kid, not being present emotionally or physically. And so when I came back to the Lord, um, I had to settle that up with him because there was some bitterness there, some anger there. And we had to work that out before I could genuinely start pursuing the call of God on my life because there were some issues there. So don't ever assume somebody else's life is perfect or they've got a, a little perfect little family life because everybody's got their stuff. And some people have a dad at home, some people don't. Uh, but some people have a dad at home, but they're absentee, right? So everybody can be plagued by this orphan spirit and it comes by way of rejection. You've been rejected or felt rejected. And so you constantly act like an orphan looking for love in all the wrong places, you know, looking for validation from people that you don't need validation from, looking for acceptance when you've already been accepted, the Bible says, into the beloved. So if you bring that spirit into a marriage, it can be detrimental. Um, but when you have a godly husband and a godly wife raising the parents, it provides a, a covering for that child of protection not just physically, emotionally, psychologically. And it, it paints a picture of who God is and should be to the child. And there's grace for our mistakes. There's grace for divorce. I'm actually preaching on that on a Sunday morning in a couple of weeks. And I believe in second chances and I'm not trying to beat anyone up that's, that's made mistakes because we have too. But what I will tell you is we should start modeling this as soon as we can, no matter if we've had three divorces, two divorces, whatever. We start putting these things into practice now, and I believe with all my heart, God will bless them. Um, when a saved mom is submitting and loving the husband in the manner that she should and not rebelling against God's model, um, it's a powerful presentation of what it looks like to become a Christian for the child. You say, how? Well, we're supposed to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow after him. So if they see a, their loving mother who birthed them willingly allowing the head to lead in loving and supporting the head of the house, then it lets the child see that there's a blessing in sacrifice, there's a blessing in submission, there's a blessing in following, there's a blessing in not always having to be right, there's a blessing in unity, there's a blessing in oneness. They see that without it being preached to them. And the greatest message you could ever preach is the one you model, <laughs> amen? If a child sees that when they're impressionable, things begin to happen. So when this becomes um, a spiritual home. It becomes a home of legacy where hope is offered. So let me break this down for you. Three 
statements and we'll get into the faith message tonight. I'm trying to get you caught up tonight because I got you talking too much last week. So legacy is restored and hope is offered. So Colossians 3, verse 15 through 17, back to our original text. Um, I got this from the late, great Dr. Jerry Vines many, many years ago, 20 years ago, and I have his permission to use it whenever I want, but this is old. I'm talking 40, 50 years old. This outline, one of the first outlines I ever studied in my 20s. Three things. Number one, let the peace of God guide the direction of the household. Let the peace of God guide the direction of the household. Shalom, the word peace means to join together. Peace brings you together. Worry pulls you apart. Whenever you have worry or anxiety or fighting going on, it does things to a child's psyche that they have to work through later. But when it's the peace of God, it brings the family together. So let the peace of God guide the direction. Everybody say direction. Direction of the household. Number two, let the word of God guide the decisions of the household. So the peace of God is going to guide the direction. The word of God is going to guide the decisions. Let me break that down. My children are very much like me. They're salesmen. Are yours like that? My kid, know how, they know how to sell me, especially my middle one. He's way like me. So he can talk me into almost anything because he's got that kind of personality. He can just, he just can turn it on. And so if your decision-making and your parenting is based on the word of God, not your emotions or not how good your kid can sell you, then you constantly have something to fall back on. Well, we just don't think that puts you in the right decision. We don't think that that's honoring God with your life. We, we, we're concerned that you're going to make a bad decision if we allow you to do this, whatever it may be. But if it's rooted in scripture, then you have a standard. You teach a child, this is the standard. This is why it's God's standard, not my standard. So you're letting the peace of God, which is the spirit's role in building the house, guide the direction. You let the word of God guide the decisions of the household. And then... In closing, let the name of Christ guide the deeds of the household. In other words, your house needs to have a head. And yes, it's to be the husband in a marriage, but there's a head greater than the husband. And that, that head is Jesus Christ. Amen. Your children need to know what you believe, who you worship, where you stand, what's important to you. Doesn't mean you have to be some kind of fakery around your kids. That doesn't work either. Your kids know you're good, bad, and ugly. Mine know mine better than y'all do. And they need to see that you're real, that you own when you sin, make mistakes. They don't need you to be some spiritual fake. In fact, that'll do double damage. They want, they want mom and dad to be real. But I would say they need to know you're submitted to Jesus, that you love Jesus, that you respect Jesus. And that when they're in trouble, you bring them back to Jesus, that your house is a place of worship too, where the name of Jesus is lifted up. Amen. Your children need to know that when 
all is going well, you give thanks to Jesus. When all hell's breaking loose, you call in upon the name that's above every name, Jesus. They need to hear you rattling off the names of God and declaring those things from the atmosphere that you need for your children. They need to hear you praying. They need to hear you prophesying. They ought to see you worship every now and then and not just on Sunday. Amen. You need to model that. And, if, and I picked on some people Sunday about worship. It's amazing what we think is normal in this country, but what we think is weird in the church. And I won't go there again, but the reason many people think authentic worship is abnormal is because they've never seen mom and dad do it. So when they see someone really get a hold of God and cry and worship and close their eyes or come down here and kneel or even get their dance on, uh, they're going to think that's strange because they've never seen mom and dad do it. And every now and then, um, they need to see mom and daddy worshiping Jesus, getting a hold of God. I'm thankful for that influence in my life. I kind of feel like the Reverend Al Sharpton, I heard him give a testimony at Jamal Bryant's church about when he would invite friends to church, he would hope his mama wouldn't show out and start dancing and getting filled with the Holy Ghost. And I remember when I was in high school, it was when the Holy Ghost was really moving at this church in the 90s. I mean, people running laps and crying and flailing out and falling out and I did all that too and but I was in high school in the back country road of Saudi Daisy and so you know I'd bring people to church and man I'd be like God I hope it don't break out tonight you know how am I going to explain this you know to Saudi Daisy because um, things would just happen you know but I'm thankful now for that legacy I'm thankful that I've seen my parents cry and quote scriptures and I've seen my parents pray and, and, and get real on the altar because when I, it hits me, I know how to get real on the altar now. You know, I know how to get a hold of God when I need him. I know how to worship him. I, I know what an authentic move of God looks like and what a religious move. I can tell the difference because I was in the Holy Ghost growing up. I saw what my parents sacrificed. And so I think it plays an important role in parenting. I'm going to put this on the tee a little bit tonight in the next few minutes for Adam. Uh, we're going to have a, a council meeting next week. I'll introduce him and let him do a little teaching. But I want to talk to you about uh, parenting just a, just a little bit, tease you a little bit with that and let him clean it all up next week. But um, parenting is such a difficult thing. Can I get an amen from anybody? I mean, it, it is the hardest thing. I thought I was the perfect dad. I really did, and I would put the amount of time I spent with my boys up against just about anybody till they were nine or 10, but something happened when they turned 12, and I was like, oh my Lord. You know, they just, they're becoming men. They're, they're going through puberty, all that stuff, and things change. You go from like their best friend to their worst enemy, you know, for a while, and, and things just get crazy for a little while. And going through that with my first child, I was like, wow. Because what I did was, and I think we all make this mistake. It's not really a mistake. It's just kind of how life works. I raised my son completely opposite of the way I was raised in, in many regards. Like the things that I thought I missed from my childhood, those are the things I gave my son, right? More time, freedom to not only be in church, but to do things outside of church where there was 
times I didn't feel like I was really able to pursue other interests as an elementary child because we were in church all the time. So all those things, you know, but it's very much like the five love languages in a marriage. We raise our kids to give them what we wanted. But what I learned after my first one was, you know, I really need to get to know who God's created them to be and quit just giving them what I missed out on and find out who they are and what they really need to thrive. And it all begins and ends with faith. Hebrews eleven twenty three. we'll get into Moses here just a little bit. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. That word beautiful has uh, an extraordinary meaning far beyond looking good. It means they saw into the future as to the destiny that he was carrying. And they were not afraid of the king's command. Exodus chapter two, verse two says, so the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, someone with destiny and legacy on their life, she hid him for three months. So his mother had extreme faith. Faith to the degree that she was willing to risk his own life in order for him to be successful. Such faith that she was willing to give up her custodial rights so that God could save the nation through her child. It's profound to think that a mother could give up their child so that the child could become all the child was supposed to be because most of us are too selfish for that. We want to keep that baby and love that baby. That's my baby, that's my baby. But somehow this wonderful mother realized that by giving the child up, she was setting the child up for success. Millions of babies are aborted every year and we stand against abortion uh, as a church, uh, as a pastor. doesn't mean I don't have compassion for people who've made that mistake. I do. It just means that I believe that uh, even a child born in a bad situation can become great, like Moses, like Jesus, like many others, Dr. Ben Carson. I, I believe people, Tim Tebow, I believe people that are even born in a difficult situation where the doctors are advising the mother to abort, God's got supernatural plans for every child. And that according to Romans, he works all things together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So God can take something tragic and make it a triumph. And that's, that's what we believe. And so you have this incredible story of a mother and a father, Amran and Joshabed were Moses' parents. They were people of faith. And they were willing to give up their child. They had two other children, Aaron, Aaron and Miriam. They were slaves, Amran and Joshabed. They were poor. They didn't have a lot. But what they did have was a spiritual legacy and faith that they could impart into their child. And the first thing they had faith for was to provide for 
their family. They had faith to cover their children. That's the first thing we're to do as parents is cover them. Everybody say cover them. First Timothy 5, 8 says, if anyone does not provide for his family or her family, and especially for those of his or her household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So I don't have any compassion for someone who doesn't step up and support their child. Um, Kelly and I were married young. We didn't have anything. And uh, we worked. She got a job at a corporation. I got a job at a corporation, entry level. We moved in a very bad part of town, 600 square foot place. Every time a car would drive by, the windows would rattle. We didn't even have furniture in our den for the first eight months we lived there. But our, our kid went to the best daycare. I'm serious. We, we, we made sure that our child had the best that we could afford. It wasn't much, but we gave him the best we had even while we were younger. And I believe people should provide for their children. And Amran and Joshbet, even though they were slaves, um, they were able to do that for young Moses. So you have to have faith to provide, number one. Number two, faith to perceive. So we're to number one, cover them. Number two, believe in them. Everybody say believe in them. It says they saw he was a beautiful child or in some translations, speaking of Moses, a proper child. See, faith sees what we can't. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. Faith has the ability to look at something that's a mess and see a ministry, to look at something that's born in tragedy and see a triumph, to look at something that's in devastation and see it taking dominion. Faith has the ability to look past the circumstances and into the kingdom. And so when it says in the scriptures in Exodus 2 that they saw a beautiful child, it means they saw this baby through their spiritual eyes. And let me give you some parenting tips the Lord's working on me about. Sometimes your kids don't give you much to look at physically or spiritually, okay? And it takes a diligent person to look past the hell they're putting you through, the stuff they say, and the direction they're going to see past all that into who they could be or can be in Christ. You've got to learn to not only provide for your family, that goes without saying, the world does that. But we've got to learn how to look at our children and see them for more than what they're showing us at the present time. Moses was only three months old, but they saw something in him. They saw something that was different. The father, Amran, his name in the Hebrew meant friend of the exalted one and kindred of the most high. So his daddy was a friend of God. And then Joshabed, that name in Hebrew means Yahweh is her glory. So the daddy was a friend of God and the mama was always in the glory of God. No wonder that God raised this young boy up to save a nation because the daddy was a friend of God and the mama was committed to the glory of God. They marked their son for God's glory. The word beautiful there in the Hebrew means used of God, created by God, and it can even mean, if you get into the Greek of it later, anointed by God. Same word used of Jesus thousands of years later. So they were able to look at this child, they covered the child, they protected the child, but they were able to see something in the child. 
I say this all the time, and I don't know if it's original with me or if it's just in the overflow of my brain, but it's not so much what you leave to a child, it's what you leave in your child. And, and listen, we should try to leave uh, an inheritance to our children, the Bible says so, but the greatest thing we can leave is a spiritual inheritance in them. That will carry them through difficult days uh, far much more than money will, but we should try to, to do both if we're able to. The word beautiful is also used to describe salvation. Moses was the savior of his nation, but he was a type and shadow of the savior of mankind to come, which was Jesus. Isaiah 52 says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, so forth and so on. This is a prophecy of Jesus. Same word used to describe Moses was used to describe the Messiah that was coming. So what kind of mark are we putting on our children? Listen, I've, I've messed this up and I've repented publicly, privately, cried over it, prayed over it, spoken tongues over it, you name it. But I've said, I'm a, I'm a words guy, right? So I, I speak a lot and I was raised around speaking and I'm very verbal. So I can hurt your feelings and that's just, I know how to do that. I'm good with my words. And I've hurt, especially my oldest. You know, I was super hard on my oldest and I coached him at everything and he was good. He was so much different than my other two. The, the trick that got me, and Rod, you'll get this being a great college football player. The more I kicked him, the better he did. So I was like, and by kicking, I mean being hard on him. I don't mean literally kicking, although I may have kicked him in the butt a time or two, I don't know. Um, but the, the harder I was on him as a coach or a dad, the better he did. So I worked. So I kept being harder, kept being harder, kept being harder. Well, I did some damage being that way that I had to come back around to later in his teens. I'd, I'd, I'd provoked him to wrath, which the Bible says not to do. It says children do not provoke, fathers do not provoke your children to wrath to make them bitter. Well, I'd accidentally done that by being just a hard-nosed dad coach. And I had to go back and make it right. And you, the word Moses literally means in the Hebrew to draw it out, to draw it out. It has to do with his mama putting him down the Nile in the basket and the family of Pharaoh getting him and raising him and then his mom getting hired to be a nursemaid and all of that. We have got to draw out the purpose in our children. Sometimes they're not gonna know who they are in Christ during the development stages. So we've got to see them, believe in them, and we've got to draw it out. Well, if you do things in a bitter, ungodly, mean, or provocational manner, as I did sometimes, you can draw out the wrong response. Instead of drawing out destiny, you're drawing out some bitterness, some anger. You're, you're building some walls up that later have to be torn down and God will tear them down if you'll repent. Um, which that's another side street I'll go on just for a minute. I think the one thing my boys would tell you about me, all of them, and I've blown it, but I admit when I blow it, I ask for forgiveness, like, and I, I really own what I did. 
I see a lot of parents in church and through the office at times or just in our personal lives. Man, it's like they can't ever admit when they're wrong. And they're doing so much damage to their children. Uh, If they've been through a divorce, they never admit to their children their part in the divorce. The daddy's the SOB or the mama's this. But let me tell you, I've never seen a divorce where the covenant didn't take two people to break it. Now, one may be in more of the wrong or more of the right based on the word of God, but that's between God and them. But for a covenant or relationship to be broken, it typically takes two, right? And so what we draw out of our children is important. We can draw out their purpose. We draw out their destiny. We can draw out God's best. Or we can bring out the worst in them by the way we treat them. So my oldest responded to harshness, goals, perfection, high standards. So then I tried that with my middle one. My middle one, if I yell at him, he just forgets you. He responds to love. He's like his daddy. Words, all that. So immediately everybody would always say, hey, your kids are going to be so different. Well, you hear that, but until you start raising them, you really don't know. Like polar opposites, my oldest and my middle. One walks in a room. If Trey walked in here right now, he would be, just the fact that I mentioned his name, he'd be having a nervous breakdown, getting embarrassed. He's the shyest kid ever, my oldest. And he would hate it. He would be uncomfortable. My middle one, he'd be meeting y'all. He's Mr. Personality, you know, loves everybody, very sentimental, very emotional, can get his feelings hurt. My oldest, he don't have feelings. He does, but you'd never know it. Like he just doesn't jive that way. My youngest, listen, all I know is he's a mama's boy, you know. He responds to both harshness and toughness, but he, I just tell him good job and let, he's mama's baby. So, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't get involved in that much. But, um, uh, my grandmother used to tell me something and I'll, I'll, I'll start landing the plane. She used to always tell me this. And I think I did it pretty sure I did it, but I would ask like, you know, how did, my dad and my uncle, my two aunts, you know, they, none of them have been divorced. My uncle Rupert's been married over 60 years. My parents have been married over 50. My Aunt Mary, my Aunt Karen, all, you know, retired at this point, all pretty successful, never been divorced, raised pretty good kids, all that stuff. Not, not perfect. There's drama in every family, but I would always ask my grandmother, you know, when she was alive, you know, she was like, you know what I would always tell my children? And I said, what? She said, I'd tell them to marry better than you. Marry somebody better than you. And she told me that. She said, marry better than you. I think I did. She would always say that. Um, but the atmosphere my uh, father and uncle and two aunts were reared in was not ideal. My grandfather was abused, didn't have parents. He, he went straight to the army, was a bootlegger, moonshiner, and Uh, He had so much pain in his own life. He had an orphan spirit. And so his way of dealing with that for a long time was, I mean, drinking. And I mean, he didn't just have a good time. It was from Thursday till Sunday, you know, fifth after fifth. And that's kind of what my dad was raised in. So 
but God got a hold of him. He got saved later. And I never saw that side of my grandfather. He was a perfect, sweet Christian man. But, you know, there were problems. But my grandparents, you know, stayed together. They kept their covenant. They kept their vows. They took the kids to church. They had standards. Even though things were a mess at times and things weren't ideal, God was able to use that. Uh, and create a legacy. So we need faith, not only to provide for our family, not only to believe in our family, we need faith to protect our family. The best thing we can do for our children is to put them in a position to succeed. We can't succeed for them, right? But we can put them in the best possible position so when they get to the age of accountability, they can either soar or sit. But whether they soar or they sit is completely up to them. I had someone tell me one time, you know, about sports. He said he, he played in the majors a little while, friend of mine. And he said, Ronnie, your kids are never going to be as good at sports as you want them to be. They're only going to be as good at sports as they want to be. And that statement changed me, but let's, let's translate that to life. Your kids are never gonna be as good as you want them to be. They're only gonna be as good and as godly as they want to be. And so our job is to put them in a position to succeed and then what they do with it is up to them. So Moses was under the sentence of death as a baby with all the male children of Israel. So his parents at the risk of their own lives you know, they devised this plan to not only protect and provide for the baby, but to put the baby in a position to succeed. They float the baby down. You know the story if you know the word of God. Pharaoh's daughter, completely different race, sees the baby, raises the baby, a Hebrew as an Egyptian, right? God is so cool that Pharaoh's daughter ends up hiring Joshua bed to be the wet nurse for Moses. So even though officially Moses becomes the daughter of the princess or excuse me, the son of the princess and becomes an Egyptian, his natural mother still got to rear him till he was six years old in the house of Pharaoh. Cause that's how God is. And even though they taught him all the Egyptian traditions that time with his mother, learning of the things of God and the things of his people, overwhelmed all the stuff the world system put in him. And so mamas never underestimate your prayers, your lessons, your love. Uh, that, those things will stick with that child long after uh, the child is gone. So faith activates God's plan for our lives. And our job is to put that child in a position for success. Some of your children, even if they're raised in the perfect situation, are going to choose not to be all that God has called them to be. And that's okay. We just have to pray for them and speak life over them, believe they're going to come to God later and fulfill his destiny. Some of them will, but you have to get to a place where you release the child. Faith to prepare your children. What does that mean? Yes, we provide for them, we cover them, we believe in them,
But when they get to a place in their life, we have to release them. Release them. Um, after Joshua had taught Moses in secret, he learned how to pray, fast, give, serve. He learned about creation, the flood, all of these different things. The Egyptian educational system could not undo what he learned. But this mother had to get to a place much earlier than we do in our culture. She had to get to a place where after she had those six years with him, she had to let him go. And he made some mistakes. You know, he murdered somebody, had to go on the run. He didn't always get it right, but he found his destiny and God got the glory. And I would say this, um, I don't, can't give you an age because it's a spiritual thing. But, you know, I don't think unless they have a mental illness or something, your kid needs to be living with you till they're 40. Um, you've, you've long since missed the opportunity to let them go. Um, I think you've got to push them out of the nest. Let God be God when they get to a certain age and of spiritual maturity. And it's much easier to encourage and help from afar than it is with them right under your nose. So I believe God is calling us to educate the next generation in the things of God. The greatest things we can teach our children are the things of God, the right history about our nation and the Bible. Um, teach them to have hope. And then honestly, every parent's goal should be to be better than your parents. I know that sounds competitive, but I don't I mean it that way. I mean... That's how legacy works. One generation builds on another. It doesn't mean your parents were bad. It just means you're going to take the lessons they taught you, the good and godly things they showed you, you're going to build on those things. That's how legacy works. Legacy doesn't go backwards. Legacy goes forward. And so everything that God used to cultivate your marriage, your, the way you raise your children, you want to keep getting better at that. You want to keep... Um, drawing from that. Let me read the word of God to you a little bit. It says, we will not hide them from their children. This is that legacy passage of scripture telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God, not forget the works of God, keep his commandments, may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart right and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So legacy constantly improves. So we want to see them the way God sees them. Children, speak into their lives. Protect them as long as we possibly can and then release them. Then release them. We all make mistakes. Hopefully it's not murdering an Egyptian, but there's a burning bush that will come and there's a calling for every child doesn't matter if they have a speech impediment, a struggle. God has a plan for every child. 
And if we will impart faith into them, we'll get to see things happen in their lives. And I'm holding on to that promise for my children, and I know you're holding on to it for yours. Amen. Uh, any questions tonight? Uh, again, if you want to email us, ronnieP at abbishouse.com, you can email me any questions you have. But we've got about four minutes tonight, I think. And yeah. Um, let me see. I don't have my phone on me. I know it's in Proverbs. We'll, we'll upload it. We'll upload it because I did not put the reference down, but it's Proverbs verse. If somebody's got Google, you can check it. Just put legacy verse in Proverbs generation to generation. And it may pull up for, um, any other questions? Man. Y'all are easy. I can't promise you we'll give you all the right answers, but we can certainly tell you what we've done wrong or right. Proverbs 13. It's actually the entire chapter. Thank you, Kelly. Google's amazing. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, you go online and uh, you could probably Google five love languages test or something and find that and you'll be able to at least figure out what your love language is. It's a phenomenal book. He's got another book out that he signed for me and sent me on love. It's one of the best books on love. Um, how we're to love people who are different from us, who believe different from us. It's, it's phenomenal. Uh, it will not sell what Love Languages did, but it's a great book. Uh, that's just one of those things that just, just God got, got he involved in and, and the world needed it when he, when he came out, up with it. How many of you are raising children or grandchildren right now? A lot of people. So Adam and Kendall are going to, talk to us next week and you know Kendall says she's not I just ordained her to preach in, in front of everybody she can, she, I have no doubts you'll, you'll do great at it you, look, you sound like my wife back there she's, she does better at it than me but scared to death to do it um, but I wanted you know you to get a perspective of, of people serving God raising little ones because like I said it's been a while for me all I can do is tell you what we did good what we did wrong and we did a lot right, but we did some things we wish we'd have done different, but I think everybody does. And so it's a hard balancing act because we were dirt poor and both working our tails off too and then working with them on the weekend. So it was just a busy season. So, and we were raising kids being extremely busy, but uh, I'm proud of how our boys are turning out. I'll tell you that. So we did something right, I think. And um, I think they're gonna do great things, be better than us, I hope. That's what I've always told my boys. You better be better than me. Because you know, your kids, they'll try to bring up your past to excuse their present. And I've always rejected that with my boys. I'm like, look, you ain't me. You couldn't hang with me. You know, you didn't have to go through what I said. Being Ronnie Phillips Jr.'s son is a lot easier than being Ron Phillips' son. So you, 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 can't, you ain't living my life, so get over it. We protected y'all. You know, they always try to bring us up.
and Reed's going to the high school we went to. Uh, I don't know if that was a good idea. He got up in the library the other day and found yearbooks and was sent texting me pictures and quotes. And I'm like, oh, oh Lord, this might not have been a good idea. So, anyways. Any other questions before we'll close tonight? Y'all pray for me that I get over this cold. It's driving me nuts. I got a golf date set in a couple of days too. I can't miss that. That's my stress reliever. All right. I've been sick for about a week. And, and continue to pray for the Wilkerson family, okay, with, with that in front of them the next three or four days. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for all the people here tonight. Be with them as they go. We speak blessing and favor over them. Lord, by way of your spirit, teach us to see our kids the way you see them. Teach us to speak life into them. Teach us to look beyond their flaws, their imperfection, their smart aleck attitudes, the things they say or do, and see the destiny and the anointing and the favor you've put on their lives for the future. Lord, teach us to speak those things that we don't see. Lord, teach us to love our wives. Teach us to submit and love our husbands. Teach us to be one flesh. Teach us to compromise, not be in a fight all the time, but to bring faith into our marriage, faith into the way we parent, faith into the way we provide. Lord, give us the faith for some of us to let go and not spoil our kids, to let go and let them be on their own. Let them learn to take the bumps of life. Let us trust your word. Let us trust how we raised them. Teach us to let go when it's time to let go, Father. And Lord, we just thank you for giving us this night together. Thank you for the opportunity we have to love people, to love our children, to love others, to love our church, and to love you. In Jesus' name, we seal this with your spirit. Amen.